pride and ego um, are present for all of us from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed. We all have agendas and sometimes we don't even know that we have them until somebody gets in the way of them. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan, and today I'm joined by Sam Artery. And Sam and I have been talking for months about trying to get this podcast um, recorded, and we just, our schedules were not aligning. And finally, the stars have aligned, and we were able to record this episode today. And I'm super excited to have him on. Sam is you know, he was a practicing attorney for years and now he is, you know, all into mediation and he, he mediates very, you know, high value, complex mediation uh, cases. And, but really what I love to hear from his outlook on mediations and the, you know, hit the psychology has be behind it when he approaches mediations and trying to get uh, the parties to a point to resolve. And I think you'll find it super insightful and helpful. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Sam. Welcome to the Defense of Arrest. I'm so happy to have you. Good morning, Megan. It's still, I'm delighted to be here. I, I Well, it is, just for our listeners, um, it is the day after, at least right now for me, it's the day after Memorial Day. It's a beautiful, steamy, hot day in South Jersey. How, how is it by you? It, it, it's the same in the middle of the country. It's hot, <laughs> hot and humid, and we, we went directly from winter to summer. We kind of skipped spring around here. Yes. Yeah. I think it was like not even a month ago, I was sitting at my daughter's lacrosse game and we had snowflakes. So um, it's been a, a wild and crazy ride this spring, I should say. Yeah. I was in Scotland one time and, and the guy that was, that was hiking around with us said, there's no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and caught off guard and said inappropriate clothing. Yes. Yes. I get it. I get it. You know, we're here today to talk, well, as, as every guest who comes on, I, I, I preface it saying I'm here to talk about you um, and what you do and how you got to where you are. But also, you know, you, you, right now you've carved out an, a career for yourself as a mediator. Um, so in a little bit, I want to get into, you know, things that you see pop up in mediations and kind of give, you know, us attorneys and, and claims professionals some, you know, tips and tricks and, you know, just general ideas and advice to make mediations run smoothly or to put your best foot forward for them. Um, and I know you've written books about it and you have a lot to say uh, on the topic, but before we dive into that, I, I want to get to know Sam and I know our, our, my listeners want to get to know, know Sam too. So you started off as an attorney, but how did you decide to go to law school? Because all of us have different reasons why we ended up there. Some by accident, some our parents did it, some we had no idea what else to do like myself and ended up in law school. So what was your, you know, your path and your journey? Well, I, I was a uh, philosophy and religion major undergrad and nobody suggested that I could make a living doing that. <laughs> uh, but, but it fit pretty well with going to law school. And so that's, that's ultimately what I did. And at the time that I did it, and I would say it's, it's different than now, um, a, a law degree was kind of a logical extension of a liberal arts education mm -hmm. because it didn't cost a fortune. I mean, you could you could literally go to law school and pay for it yourself if you worked pretty hard in the summer over the three years rather than graduating with six figure debt. So it was it was an easier thing to do at the time. And I didn't know what else I was going to do. So I just went. Now, having said that, um, I got to my fourth semester of law school. So I'm almost two thirds of the way through. And it was just before spring break. Um, and I hated law school. I love practicing law and mediating, but I did not. I was not a law school lover. Um, and it wasn't the fall of the law school, it was me. So it was just before spring break. And I decided the wise thing to do was to leave law school. So I decided I was going to watch the space shuttle take off in Florida and land in Southern California. So I left the Dean a note and I said, I quit. Um, and I did not, I did not take any precautions to withdraw from my classes. Um, I ended up, I ended up not going to watch a space shuttle take off and land, but I bought the cheapest bus ticket I could get and I ultimately became a bar back at Harvey's Casino in Lake Tahoe, California, Lake Tahoe, Nevada, um, and worked there. And then while I was there, I thought, well, this doesn't seem to be the greatest career path in the world either. Um, but the dean was really kind, and he sent me a note while I was out there, and he withdrew me from all my classes. One was finished, um, so I, and I passed that one. Uh, and he said, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. I'll give you a one-year blanket leave of absence to return whenever you want uh, for that year. 
That's great. So, um, it was it was incredibly kind. It was a break that I needed, even though I did not pursue or pursue it in a very mature or grown up kind of way. <laughs> and I ended up going from like Tahoe to Portland, Oregon, where I worked as a uh, uh, a night manager in a really poor kind of homeless area of town. And the first night I was there, somebody died in the lobby of the hotel. Uh, and all of a sudden, law school was seeming better and better. Uh, yeah. So I came back, uh, and I, and then I began working as a, uh, a litigator, uh, and I spent about twelve years litigating. And at that, about twelve years in, um, was when mediation really kind of began, uh, at least in where I am. Uh, and I went to mediation training not because I had any interest in being a, a mediator. I just wanted to know what they were going to do to me. Um, I I thought I don't like this. I like litigating. I like the process. I like trying cases. And it was a time when, when a lot of cases got tried. I mean, now over 90% in most jurisdictions settle. So we call ourselves trial lawyers, but, but just the nature of the beast is not that many cases get tried. Uh, So um, I went to the training and then I did one mediation and then I did two and then I did four or 5,000. So I just, uh, so I, I am an accidental, accidental and unintended mediator, but I love doing it. Now, when you were practicing, were did you were you on the defense side or were you on a plaintiff side? I, I was originally a prosecutor, and I and I was a pro, I, so I got to try my first case before I even got out of law school. There was a provision <laughs> to do that here, mm-hmm. um, and then I was almost all defense and commercial, uh, and I did that for about ten years. And then we needed some plaintiffs' work to be done at our law firm. We had some cases coming in, so I. I was doing plaintiff's work and defense both and trying to juggle those conflicts. Uh, and then I became more of a, a plaintiff's lawyer, kind of a catastrophic injury uh, person. And then it turned out that I was doing more and more mediation. So I transferred most of that practice to another partner in our law firm. And, and I spend about 90% of my time doing mediations or talking about mediation or teaching at, at the law school or other places about mediation and negotiation and conflict. So let me ask you though, when as like a younger attorney doing more plaintiffs work, what was the environment at your firm as to like business development? You know, it, it, like was there pressure on you to you know go out there and g- gain your own clients? Well, our our, our firm is relatively small. I mean, we were were we were about fifteen lawyers, okay. uh, and so the more senior lawyers usually brought in the business, but the plaintiffs' work had not been a traditional part of our practice. It just kind of happened, and it was a we were pretty careful about the plaintiff's work we were doing. We sent about 70% of the people that came to see us away because uh, we thought it didn't fit with what we were doing. Uh, and we, so we screened our cases pretty carefully, one, to avoid conflicts, and two, to only take cases that we thought we could help people. So if, if somebody came in with a minor impact, sore neck collision case, even if it was clear liability, what we would usually do in those cases is say, how about if we help you have some of these conversations and see if you can be done with this, unless you think you're really hurt badly, in which case we need to get you to somebody yeah. um, and, and help them get through it that way and they just not bill for it. But um, there, there is pressure, but not crazy pressure uh, because the, the more senior people in our office uh, had plenty of work to do. Mine just kind of naturally developed. Uh, but, but what I find is it's not so different uh, from what Matthew Queen talked about in your, in your earlier podcast. Uh, getting out and talking to people, figuring out what you know, figuring out what you want to do. And it kind of, and I remember somebody telling me early on, your specialty becomes what your biggest client needs you to do. Uh, and if, if we could answer questions before people had to ask them um, and we made their job easier, that was what we found was the best way to develop business. So even as young lawyers, when we would be doing uh, seminars or presentations or meeting with clients or meeting with larger groups, we would want our, our younger lawyers also to be part of those so they could show off their expertise as well. Uh, but, but what I, and this is the same thing I think about with negotiation, mediation, with, with client development. And, and I tell people this when, I, when, I teach, when I'm teaching negotiation to law students, I t- I'll tell them, if you remember nothing else other than this, please remember this. You want to make it as easy as possible for the other side to do what you want them to do. And I think in, in law schools and in the practice of law and seminars, we get so caught up in the advocacy, pounding our hand on the table, thinking our cases are great that we forget. That does not necessarily help get the other side to the place we need them to get to make good decisions, which may mean lowering a demand, raising a demand, whatever that might be. And I find the same thing works with client development, that getting the clients tends to be a byproduct of other things we do with that person 
rather than just going in laser focused on, I've got to get this client. For sure. And I think going in with the, with the sole intention of just like gaining a client, it, I think that's almost like a recipe for disaster because you're not, you're, you're going in, but kind of more selfish reasons than, Hey, I, I want to figure out how to help you. And what is it that you need and you're lacking and how can I help that for you and change, change it for you more so than I want a client. Can you be mine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, well, and, and there's a, there's a great, people tend to want to spend time with people they trust. Right. And, and even though, you know, when the, my, my three daughters are all grown now, but you know, we might tell them, you know, trust is earned. It's also chosen. I mean, we're, we're making decisions to trust people every single day. I was thinking yesterday, I was standing on the edge of a busy street in Chicago um, and cars were whizzing by me at probably 60 miles an hour. And I'm a foot from the edge of the road. Well, I'm trusting that those people aren't drunk, that they aren't yeah. texting, that they're not going to miss what they're doing and, and swerve off the side of the road and hit me. And I don't know any of them. So yeah. we are choosing to trust every day in, in, in certain ways. And I think that piece with, with the clients or potential clients, there's a there's a trust equation that I find incredibly helpful that a guy named David Meister came up with. Um, the equation is trust equals, and the numerators are on the top line, is credibility plus reliability plus vulnerability. Those are the three, the three entities on the top, or the three topics on the top. And the bottom is self-focus underneath the line. And so as, and it kind of goes to what you were just saying, if I lower my self-focus and don't make it all about me, trust goes up. Mm -hmm. So if I don't go in saying, I got to get this client, or if I don't treat a case when it comes in as an asset, as opposed to a problem to be quickly solved for the benefit of my client, then that's saying, okay, I'm going to, I may make less money this time, but it is a profession. And my job is to deal professionally with those people. So as I become more vulnerable, trust goes up. As I focus on myself less, trust goes up. And if I do those two things, which might seem a little bit counterintuitive, then I'm more inclined to have a client want to work with me. I had a, I had a great conversation with a, a lawyer that it was a big piece of litigation with a boatload of money involved. Um, and it was with a, one of the senior litigators at, at a firm in Chicago. And we, we knew this mediation was going to take a lot of time. It was set up over the course of several months. And we were going back and forth and going up for in-person meetings. It was before COVID and also doing things in between. And we got to the last day where it looked like it was tipping towards settlement. Um, and he came in and he said to me, he said, you know, this case is going to settle today because it makes sense for our clients a good decision. But by settling it today, we're probably giving up three to five million dollars in fees. Um, and he was not saying that like we ever considered doing it otherwise. He was just stating a fact. But the fact for him was the way we do business at this law firm is we represent clients well. And we're not going to treat this case as a three to five million dollar asset. We're going to treat this case as one that we're going to wrap up for our client because it makes sense and our client wants it wrapped up. But that's not the way everybody does business. And if a client perceives otherwise, they're not going to want to do business with you. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Like, I, and I, it's come up a lot on this podcast, even from, and even when I talk to people on the phone before they come on the podcast, like the that mindset that oh, I can't, I can't get rid of this file because then what, what will I do? I, I, and rather than being like, well, if I if I can wrap this up quickly and efficiently, there will be more to do, you know, I, but it's, you're doing a service. Like I, I remember real early in my practice, there would be certain firms that I would have, you know, representing co-defendants and it was clear what they were doing. Like I would joke, I was like, every, every thought comes on a separate piece of paper because they can bill for each paper rather than trying to like, you know, kind of consolidate things and like work together to, to, to resolve it. They almost wanted to stretch it out to make more money for themselves versus, you know, wrapping it up for their client and, and, and being on the other side of that, or even have that a co-defendant that has an attorney practice in that way. It's infuriating because it makes your job harder too, because they could be holding up resolution for everyone. And I'm sure you see this in your mediation practice. If you have multiple defendants, I, I'm sure you see it all the time that there's that one defendant that is just being unreasonable for no good reason or well yeah a reason definitely not a good one well and, and i think and i want I, I do see that um and and i i try to be careful not to judge it think okay maybe that they've got a relationship and yeah. that client has hired them and it may be a repeat client who's decided they're okay with that for for whatever reason but the, the thing that i find most curious now is 
we know that in almost all jurisdictions, 98% or more of cases settle. We know that. Uh, and if that's the case, then why is it we would want to wait three years and a million dollars of litigation fees in to get the case done? But I think that the difficult part of that, and when I do, because people often call me about pre-suit mediations. I say, let's do a pre-suit mediation. We think there's not that much of a liability issue, or we think there's a damage issue. We've got multiple defendants. Um, and, and I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but I want everybody to know that takes way more sophistication on your part, not less. Because even though we never know until the jury comes back what's really going to happen, I mean, we, we all are projecting and we're evaluating our cases and we're saying, okay, what things might make juries come in at higher or lower numbers? We don't know for sure until the jury comes back. But sometimes where people will get stuck in that pre-suit process and say, well, we don't know what this expert's going to say. We don't know what that's, that expert's going to say. Or we don't know what this witness is going to say, but you know you've got somebody who's a quadriplegic in the hospital and you know there's a, a dash cam video of what happened. So within certain ranges, we could probably guess about where it's going to go. And people say, well, I've got to know. And I'll say, well, then let's not pre-suit mediate it. But because there, there's, a, there's a, an author, a Native American author named Dark, author named Dark Rain Tom, T-H-O-M. And she was giving a talk to a, a, a women's group. Golly, it's probably been 20 years ago. I was not there. My wife was. Uh, but the thing she came <laughs> away from that is one of the things Dark Rain Tom said, which I think applies to all litigators, is the moment of absolute certainty never comes. And unless you can accept that as a reality, it becomes enormously difficult to do your job on either side. Uh, because I've got to say, okay, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. But part of the reason my client has hired me or hired you or hired anybody else is say, okay, here's what we know right now. Um, we know that we've got X percent chance of winning and losing. We know that on a pretty generous jury day, the jury might come back in this range based on experience we have. We know if we do pretty well, this might be a conservative jury number. We know that we've got these kinds of costs with experts and depositions and other things are going to have to happen. And what are the intangibles that might make us more or less inclined to settle a case? And I call that the five finger diagram. I mean, I literally draw an ugly hand on a board, whether it's in a, a tall building in Chicago or New York, or whether it's in a, a one story um, office in you know, Southern Tennessee. Um, because what it helps me do is it helps me ask questions of the lawyers in terms of how they evaluate the case. And even if they don't want to answer the question for me, it gives them a chance to have that conversation with the client. And it lets me give the, the client permission for their lawyers to answer difficult questions. And I'll tell them that. I'll say, my own bias is, I think I've got a 20% chance of losing anything. There is at least a 20% margin for error. So the client's thinking, well, golly, how can I lose this case? I was setting a stoplight and I got rear-ended by a semi-tractor trailer. Okay, probably you don't lose that case, but we've all seen things happen if you've tried enough cases that shock us for reasons we never could have guessed. So when we go through that process, it lets the lawyer talk to the mediator directly about how she evaluates the case and lets the client hear that conversation without having to completely personalize it. And I would never ask particularly a plaintiff not to personalize their case. Um, but in a way that they can say, oh, this is, these are issues that do come up. And I can tell them, this is what the people in the other room are doing too. That, that defense lawyer and that claims professional are doing the same thing because they don't like losing any more than you do. They're in a better position to afford to lose because on the defense side, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a risk analysis game all the time. But the plaintiff only has one case. And so it allows the conversation to be more broad and the clients to participate differently. And do you find, you know, I'm fearing off a little bit, but when you mentioned the different areas that you mediate, do you find that there's a different mentality in approaching how people approach mediations depending on where they live ge geographically? Yes. Um, and, so what but, do you see? I'm curious. <laughs> well, um, what I find is um, if I'm somewhere on the East Coast and the opening demand is not 10 or 20 times higher than where they really want to go, uh, then people think they're crazy. If I want to do that same, mediate that same case in Oklahoma, and they're more than three times the amount of what the case might really be worth, then people walk out. Um, so there are different kinds of conversations um, and people have different expectations. So I find that in, in most bigger cities, whether it's you know, New York or Philadelphia or Chicago or you know, pick one, um, people tend to have more competitive kind of transactional demeanors um, and, but what I find is 
the, the people that, and, and this is just kind of research-based, but the people that negotiate the best, that mediate the best, that deal with conflict the best, are tend to be the people that know themselves the best. Yeah. That doesn't mean they necessarily behave exactly like themselves, but it's, you know, the old adage of, if, you know, the only tool I have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and I think the piece, I realize I'm veering off too, uh, but I think the, the biggest piece people miss wherever they are is that when we are advocating, we are rarely listening. And if I'm not listening and paying attention, then I may not be able to figure out where my pressure point is, where my point of entry is with that other person, what might really get it done, which is why um, in, 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 my, in my book, Positively Conflicted, I talk about three counterintuitive ways to deal with conflict or negotiation. And, it, and they are embrace discomfort, because none of us like to be uncomfortable, mm -hmm. to radically listen. And when I say radically listen, um, I'm talking about listening, not active listening, like we nod our heads and say hello, like you might do in a friendly conversation. But I'm talking about listening radically and open to the possibility I might be wrong. Can I be open to that 1% possibility that I might be wrong? And the third one is to admit my part of the problem that, that I am, I mean, because there is no conflict if I just say yes, right? I mean, if I'm, if I'm an insurance claims person and I write the check, there's no conflict anymore. If I'm on the plaintiff side and I take the claims representatives offer, there's no conflict anymore. So that, that is an option. Maybe not the best one. It's not, doesn't tend to be the way we do it. Um, but I find in a lot of places, um, and this includes in the Midwest as well, it's not just on, on either coast, um, is that we all have our ways of doing things and then we get uncomfortable if somebody else does it differently. And we'll, and even really sophisticated people put their flag in the ground. I was talking to someone from Washington State recently and, um, and he, was, he was a really sophisticated person who does lots of cases and, and the numbers were very far apart. And he said, well, uh, they're moving anywhere close. I'm not even moving in response to that. Um, and I said, well, first of all, it's your money. You can do it how you want. I said, but my, my goal in mediation is twofold. One, I want to help you settle the case if that's what you think you want to do. And two, if it doesn't settle, I want you to know where it could have settled for. I, I want you to know what they might have taken, even if you choose not to pay it. And I want them to have an idea of what range they would need to be in um, if they want to settle the case, even if they're not going to take it. So you have a right to take that, but this kind of goes back to the trust equation. Yeah. No case can settle unless one side or the other at least dips their toes into that vulnerability water at some point. Say, okay, I know we've played the game, we've done the dance, but it's getting late in the day or late in the fourth day or whatever day it is. Um, if they don't know what I might really do, if I'm still staying in this puffing area, then I can't even find out if the case could have settled. And that's a place where I think people need to really utilize the mediator. I mean, you could say, I, I mean, the mediator can't disclose confidential information, but you can say, listen, if I move here, what do you think will happen? I can say, well, I don't think there'll be any interest. I think you will get nothing for that offer. So make whatever offer you want. Part of my job is to warn you what might happen. And what will likely happen here is you will shut it down. You have, I'll do it. I just want you to know. And, you know, but that also is such a good point at the importance of knowing when to mediate and when you need to have a mediator involved. Because look, we lawyers on our own can go back and do that negotiation and be like, well, I'm not going to, like, that's easy. You know, like, but when... And I always tell my clients this, that I, when you recognize what are going to be roadblocks to mediation, may, maybe it's a high lean, like maybe we have favorable liability, but there's a high lean, you have these roadblocks. And that's typically when I'm like, look, we can play the game back and forth, but we're always going to have this monkey in the room, which is this lean. And we're always going to have this liability issue. So we need a, a neutral to come in and kind of break down the the communication barriers between us and try to work through that because I think the back and forth negotiation between lawyer and lawyer with those things, it's just, you're going to just not get anywhere. So I, think, I no, find I, it's like more cost effective too. I, I think it is. And, and, and I, one of the things I'll hear a lot from defense lawyers uh, is, well, their lien is not my problem. And, and I'll say, well, I understand that you didn't create the lien um, and you're not the one negotiating the lien. But if you want to settle the case, it is a problem to settlement. Yeah. It just is. Um, and that way we can talk about it. And it also gives me a chance to talk to the, to the lien holder directly, provided the plaintiff's lawyer will, will let me do that. And I can use the defense arguments in doing that. And then when we talk about kind of that, that evaluation process, if you've got an experienced lawyer or claims person dealing with a complaint, we can say, listen, everybody agrees this is a million dollar case. They just topped out at 200,000. If the plaintiff is willing to consider $200,000, what do you think the chances are you're going to get any money back on your lien if this case gets tried? 
Um, and it gives us a chance to kind of have that conversation very differently. Because you're right, the lawyer, the lawyers can go back. Well, and I guess speaking to that, I talked to a lawyer, it's probably been six months ago now, and I hadn't seen him in a long time, and it wasn't just because of COVID. Um, and I said, I haven't seen you lately. What's going on? He said, well, you know, a couple of years ago, what I started doing as soon as a case comes in is I pick up the phone and I call the plaintiff's lawyer. Um, and I don't call the plaintiff's lawyer to say your case stinks or anything else. I just call and say, hey, I'm going to be defending this case. Here are the standard things I file at the beginning in terms of a, a, an appearance and a motion to enlarge time to do an answer. And, and we usually do standard discovery. Are there some things about this case you want me to know now that you'd like me to tell my carrier? Do you think this is a case that could, I mean, and they, he has a real conversation with them. Um, and what he said is I'm mediating about eight, about 50% uh, as much as I used to, because he and the other lawyer have established a relationship right at the beginning, rather than emails that can carry all kinds of baggage unintended or I'm busy. It's the end of the day. It's irritating. And I just send this curt response, not even intending anything nasty or accusatory, but it gets read that way. So what I intended doesn't matter if the result is it sounds bad to the other side makes them mad. Yeah. I had a very, very similar conversation with a friend of mine who's a plaintiff's attorney who came on this podcast too. And he said, like, you know, when at the very beginning, when they issue their initial demand letter to the insurance company, he's like, if that adjuster would just pick up the phone and call me, you know, we could probably eliminate like so many issues and we could probably resolve this without them even having to hire counsel. Um, and he was more of giving a plea, like, call me, I, you know, call me and we could probably get this done. Um, and I mean, but that's not always the case, but I do think it's the case more often than not. And even after you have counsel engaged, you know, to do exactly what that attorney's doing, I, I do that all the time, you know, just well, to talk to them early, like, and have the frank conversation. What's, what's going on here that I'm not like, I'm reading the complaint, but what's really happening? Like, what's the real deal? <laughs> <laughs> what are you not going to put in a letter, but you're willing to share with me? You, yeah. your, your, letter, your letter is full of chest thumping and puffing, uh, but let's talk about the case. We, we, we agree maybe that, you know, short of lightning striking, you're going to win on liability. The damage range is really huge because of these things. Are these things you could get me sooner than later? Is treatment over? Is it not? Is this just a concussion or is it a real a, a TBI with some different factors in there that they're going to be experts? And, and that way you could say, okay, we're not going to file suit right now, but we're going to spend three months trying to exchange some information and be as candid as we can, which works well on the defense side and works well for that plaintiff who doesn't get any money till it's over. Um, but, but I find if, if defense counsel or if the insurance representative uses that as a time to leverage and not be realistic about where the case might go, um, then it doesn't help at all. It, it, it diminishes trust and it makes the litigation when it ultimately happens last longer, be more contentious and cost more. Yeah, I, I will say I recently, or I guess it wasn't recently, a while ago, <laughs> did a, like an early mediation in a case that we were trying to, you know, recognize that there could be exposure uh, because of the, 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 the damages but was a good early mediation case. And the opposite of that happened, or I would say the trust was broken down right away because the plaintiff, even we had many conversations ahead of time about approaching this mediation and the, the plaintiffs came in, there were very unreasonable expectations. I think particularly for an early mediation, like they were approaching the mediation as if it were a late game, discovery is already done. Um, you know, everything's been ironed out. We know where this kind of goes versus okay, we're trying to do this early, you know, to kind of save everyone some maybe money, time, you know, and it, it imploded in like two hours, just done and done. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and that could happen on either side. I mean, and yeah. I'll ask people sometimes, or like, because sometimes it can be in the defense room or the plaintiff's room. I'll say, okay, and I realize you're not giving me authority to tell the other side, but if, if you tried this case 10 times, from what you know now, what would be a pretty good verdict from the plaintiff's standpoint? They'll, they'll give me a number. And I said, what, what might be a, a verdict where you get a verdict, but you're pretty disappointed? Not your worst day, but you're disappointed. They'll, and they'll tell me that. Um, I'll say, okay, well, we're pre-suit. Uh, where do you want to start? And they'll be like six times their, their high-end number. And I'll say, you have authority. You've got a right to do that. But again, back to negotiation literature, we can talk about anchoring till the cows come home. But the kind of anchoring that works is the first person that anchors in a reasonable range, not the person that anchors the highest. And what I will tell people on the defense side and the plaintiff side is uh, the reason 98% of the cases settle is we usually have pretty sophisticated people on both sides. If I had to tell everybody they were betting a month's pay on where this case ends up, 
I'll bet your, your ranges would not be more than 10% apart or likely would overlap. But so we can, we can do this, but and the same happens to the defense room. Defense might say the range is a million, half a million dollars to a million dollars. And I'll say, okay, where do you want to open? They'll say 50,000. I'll say, okay, that's fine, but we're not going to get anywhere. You're not, you're going to get no valuable information. If the plaintiff does the same thing in kind, we're just all going to be stuck. Yeah. And I will say personally, uh, you know, when I'm sitting in that room, I truly honor the mediator's input on to what would be a good and a bad start. Like, I, you know, we always talk about it with the client, like this is where we want to be, but like, <clears throat> I appreciate the honest feedback when you, you, you give that opening number. And if you were sitting there, Sam, you know, you're sitting there, Sam saying like, you can do it. Um, but I'm going to tell you, this is, you know, I truly appreciate that because your, your role is to, we all are coming for the, a common goal. Um, and that might make us feel a little uncomfortable and, you know, make us uneasy. But if I know going in, you know, offering the 50,000 is going to make them walk off the bat. Well, sometimes it tells me two things that maybe they're not coming in here, you know, wanting to resolve the case, but also I could be, or we could be unwillingly setting them off to be like, well, they're not coming in here with the, you know, with the right purpose. So that's where you come in to be like, look, <laughs> you want to give this a fighting chance? <laughs> well, and, and the other thing I, I, I want to keep in mind, but when I was a, a, a litigator in either room, and certainly a, as a mediator, is if somebody's getting really angry, I don't know why, mm -hmm. uh, because anger usually is a secondary emotion to fear of something. Um, and, th and that there may be things going on, I don't know, or that you don't know, or it could be going on with your client that you don't even know. Um, there could be change of authority or changes in management in an insurance company where people have decided, listen, we've got a new way we're going to negotiate cases. Um, and we're going to do an evaluation. We may decide we're not even going to tell our lawyer, which drives lawyers crazy, but they have a, I mean, their, their case, they can do it how they want. Um, and, and we just don't even know what that is. And so it, there could be, I mean, I've had more than one frontline experienced claims person say to me when we're really far apart and I say we've talked about this case you guys have told me what you think it, it, it's, it's worth I mean the range is and you're not where the plaintiffs are but your number all day we're, we're at the end of the day you tell me you're out of money and you're not even even at your low end um, and and I've had this has happened multiple times say listen I think we're going to get our butts kicked at trial but I am better off blaming it on a bad jury than going back to my vice president asking for more money one more time um, and I think that's a case back to defense lawyers. To the extent you have a good relationship with that frontline person, those are phone call conversations. Those aren't email conversations. Say, say, listen, you, I've sent these evaluations and, and you're, you're coming back and telling me your way lower. Is, I said, is that a problem where we really see it differently? Or is there something else going on that you need more for me? Or you've decided there's certain kinds of cases you want to get tried to get some data on because I'm really missing something here. Um, and that becomes an important relational piece between the defense lawyer and the client's person. Oh, for sure. And those conversations are so important, yet sometimes really hard to have. Yes, they are. You know, and it, because, and I think they're hard to have because going into it as the attorney, you're kind of worried about the response could be. I mean, because you don't want it to be, you're totally off and they totally disagree. At least. And you know what, if I am off, I want to hear why you disagree with me but internally you really don't want to be off because you want, <laughs> you want them to be like, yes, your valuation makes sense. You know, and when they disagree with it, I want to hear why they disagree, but you really want to be right, of course. But it, they're, they're hard conversations to have, but they're yeah. just super important and it just further solidifies the relationship and you know, the trust, like you said, between, between you and the adjuster, you and the insurance company or the well, client or whoever it might be. And I think you can, on the defense side, people can lay the groundwork for that in their initial evaluation letter, say, okay, based on what we see, this is what liability looks like. This is what damages look like. This is what this other lawyer is like to deal with if, you're, if it's somebody you've dealt with multiple times. Said, here are things that can change this number. Here are change, things that could change the way I see liability, the way I see damages. Um, and we're going to look for those. And then, because then when you get to that time where you're deciding, is this a case to resolve early or not, say, okay, we've got some unknowns here. And, and if we're wrong on those, are those huge variations in value or are they just incremental? Say, okay, listen, we know we're going to have to get an expert if they get an expert, but really what we know here is this is a legitimate injury. We, we, somebody lost their leg. Um, we, we, we know generally what a lost leg is worth. We've got the data, their income tax returns. So th those are, but if, you're, if they say, no, you're wrong, say, 
please help me why. This is what I'm doing all the time. I sent you a, a legitimate evaluation from my perspective. Please help me with where you disagree and the reasons, because then I can help you more. Yes, absolutely. So let me ask you this, though, um, because I touched on this earlier. You know, when you have a scenario, when you do have a, a lot of a number of defendants and you have that one holdout, how, how do you handle that as a mediator to try to break through that? Well, here's what I've started doing in the last few years when I've got, say, a construction case where there may be several horrible injuries, several layers of coverage, and everybody gets invited to the party. Um, I will talk with all the defense counsel individually. Um, I'll say maybe we ought to all get together. But what I've started doing is I send them all a, a letter, almost like a verdict form. Um, and I'll say, OK, here are the number of par- you, You've all agreed that there are likely this many parties this many defendants and the plaintiff on it too. Um, so, and we're gonna do this anonymously. So what I want you to do is say what you think the likely division of comparative fault is, what you think the likely range of damages is, um, good day and bad day, so they can give me ranges. Um, and I say, what I'm gonna do with that, I'm gonna have you send it to my assistant anonymously. So I'm not gonna know whose is whose. You just have to trust me on that. If you, if you can't, I get it, you won't participate. Um, but then if everybody agrees, I'm gonna share the high valuation, the low evaluation, and the average. So everybody can look at it. And what tends to happen, almost everybody gives their own defendant less fault. Um, There are always some people that are um, more candid than others about damage valuations, but we can look at what the high, the low, and the average is so people have some kind of an idea. So then when we start talking about it, if somebody says, well, golly, I think I've only got 5% fault and everybody else is giving them 50 Say, well, I understand there's some, there's some gaming here, but you now know that. For, for better or worse, you now know that. Um, and I find that really helps that conversation. So what I'll usually do after I've gotten that back, I get permission from them, first of all, uh, to share it. And I'll, I'll get everybody together. And I'll say, let's have a conversation now. It depends. Some people, you know, will, again, will yell and scream and kind of posture for their clients. And then we'll have to do it all separately anyway. But it gives me a much better global idea. We say, okay, we think we now have a case. It's most people on average think this case is a three to $5 million case. The lowest number we got was a million and the highest was 12. Okay, the, we, can, we can talk about those things. But when we start talking about where the finger is likely to be pointed, and I'll ask the plaintiff, and I don't share those numbers with the plaintiff, obviously, but I'll ask the plaintiff some of those things. I'll say, can I share with the defendants where you see most of the liability here, how you see it, where you see damages are. And I find if I do that ahead of time, we don't have to spend the first day trying to figure out whether we're going to contribute proportionally or not. Because I, I, we finished one case about four in the morning and there were 18 defendants and we had 18 separate settlement agreements because no defendant was willing to let any other defendant know what, what he was going to pay. Um, I mean, it was, it was so, and, and I'll tell the defendants sometimes, I'll say, I think of the defense room as the grown-up room, not not in a disparaging way to the plaintiff's room, but everybody in the defense room are professionals that are doing it all the time. Almost always, at the very least, we have one person in the plaintiff's room who's who's a one-off. That person that got hurt, they're not wanting to be in more lawsuits. The plaintiff's lawyer certainly is a professional, um, and and but it's I mean, pride and ego um, are present for all of us from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed. Yes, I, I've seen that happen so much that they're like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want them to know, you know, what I'm paying because then they're, they're not going to settle because they're not thinking I'm paying enough. And I mean, it, if that's what's going to get it done, that's what's going to get done. But it, it does seem very childish. It, it, but, but we all do. I mean, that's why I say we can't. I mean, I, I, we all have agendas, and sometimes we don't even know that we have them until somebody gets in the way of them. I mean, I, it, I, what I find is most of the things we talk about mediation. We kind of learn around our kitchen tables anyway. I mean, I, we've got our, our kids all have kids now. And, and, I, and I've told them, I said, your, your children negotiate from the time they're born. If they cry long enough and loud enough, you will give them what they want. As they get older, you'll decide how much pain you're willing to live with to try to train them not to do that. And insurance carriers and defense lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers all kind of learn the same thing. But I was, my wife and I were sitting around our kitchen table one morning and, and my wife frequently has better and certainly different ideas than I do. And we were talking about this personnel decision in our office. I said, I said, here's what we've decided to do. Uh, what do you think? And so she thought about it and started to tell me. And the longer she talked about it, the more angry I got. And I don't mean pound the table yelling, screaming, but she yeah. could tell I was irritated. She stops in the middle. She said, she said, what, 
what's your problem? I said, you, all you did was ask me a question. I don't care what you do with this personnel decision. I'm just telling you what, what you asked me and you're mad. And, and all of a sudden the light bulb went off. It never occurred to me that she might reach a conclusion differently than the one I've already reached. And it just never occurred to me. And then when that happened, I thought, I'm mad. I can't figure out why it's well, well, she had good reasons. Um, she was presenting it to me. I thought that just, so I thought I, I asked her a question, but I really wasn't asking her a question. I was, I was, I was wanting her to tell me, good job. What a great decision you made. You wanted affirmation. Absolutely. And, and we forget that sometimes when we're, when we're asking those questions and we all, because we've gotten where we've gotten, whatever that is. I mean, you're, you're an, an experienced, uh, accomplished trial lawyer and you've got and you've gotten there because you've used your common sense most of the time but there's a woman named francesca gino um, who's who's at harvard now but she writes about how we make decisions and the longer we've taken to make a decision the more we've invested in making that decision the less likely we are to consider conclusions that are different than the ones we've already reached and i think for litigators for claims people for plaintiffs lawyers for plaintiffs themselves that, that's why I say that radical listening is different than active listening. It's saying, I'm going to set aside my agenda for now. I'll probably know I have an agenda if I start getting mad when somebody disagrees with me. And that's, that's kind of the red light bulb going off. Um, and what I suggest to people with that is uh, I use the acronym PARC, P-A-R-C. Um, so when I feel that electrical jolt, that what I call the justice gene has been tweaked, somebody's cut me off in traffic, my wife's arguing with me in a way that I didn't anticipate. You know, something's happened that in my mind is unfair. I want to park because I'll, my physiological response will be like the lion is chasing me in the jungle, but that's not really what's happening or rarely is that happening. So I want to pause, which is not natural because I'm, I'm reactionary. I want to argue. I want to push you back. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to assess. I want to say, okay, how do I perceive the facts? I want to assess and say, okay, or I want to reflect and say, okay, this is how I perceive the facts, but What's the context? What are the personalities? What's going on here? What might be afraid of? And then I want to choose. So after I've parked, that's a much better way to do it. But the example I used most recently of someone who didn't park uh, was Will Smith at the Oscars. Yep. Right. He got that electrical jolt. Something was going on. Um, it felt like I need to do something right away. And I don't I don't know all his motives. So I'm not trying to judge them one way or the other. But what he did is he, he reacted right away. Um, and and most of us aren't, don't have an audience of a billion people. So, you know, he, he got a particularly difficult response to his reaction. And I'm not, I'm not trying to throw stones at at Will Smith because I'm capable of doing the same thing, whether it's at my kitchen table or in a mediation. But I find if I can pay attention to the physical cues, whether I'm the litigator, the claims professional, the plaintiff, the plaintiff's lawyer, or the mediator, because I get tweaked too, that can really help me step back and say, okay, how can I engage in this conversation in a way that moves us forward rather than blowing it all up. Yeah. Um, I could offshoot on Will Smith, but I'm not, because that's a total offshoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I didn't mean to go there. I just thought it no. was, it, it's an example that people know of in a completely different setting, but haven't we all done it? I mean, haven't you blown up and think, yes. oh, golly, I, I, I totally misperceived what was going on, or, um, and, and, and I responded badly. I just did. I, no, it's a perfect example and a relatable example, because it, it it's a bigger scale of like what kind of what we we go through but and one thing that i experience that a lot of times when i get a new case and or a case that i'm struggling with one i find the importance of roundtables and bouncing things off you know other people at, at my firm or what they what they might think of things and sometimes it makes you angry because you're like well no that that's not how i see it and they see it differently but it the point is like, yes, like I am not the only eyes and, you know, I want, I should want to hear your, you know, your input. But the other thing I do often though, if I have, you know, I, I will toss out the idea of a case to, you know, someone who doesn't, is not in, in this world and don't see this all the time because I feel one, that's your jury, <laughs> right. but, but two, like they don't get as hung up on some of the details that, we in, immersed in it do um like for instance i'll show like a picture of like a, a sidewalk defect or something i'll show it to my husband he'll be like i don't i don't understand the problem you know what <laughs> but that's kind of sometimes you need to hear that because you're like you know you get so focused on these little details that you kind of sometimes need to take a step back and hear or listen to someone who's outside that that world and who's able to be like 
see it as a big deal or not, or, or as a big deal, or I get their perception on, on it. And it allows you to look at it a little bit differently. Well, and I think one of the things we have to be careful of, and I think we lawyers can sometimes be the, the biggest offenders in this way, um, is we think rationality carries the day. And by rationality, it means our rationality, right? It's the way I'm thinking. I mean, if I'm influenced by this, certainly, certainly you should be. Um, and and I, we probably have all had said to us, or we have said to somebody else, I want you to set aside your emotion to be rational here. Um, and that, that is a phrase that I never use, or if I use it, I'm making a huge mistake. I've been tweaked in, because I'm immediately insulting the other side. I'm suggesting their their response their their quote emotional response is disproportional to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really saying, which is true of all conflicts, I mean, think about when a conflict arises with with you and your husband or a partner or somebody else. I mean, isn't the first response think well, why don't why don't you change so I'll feel better? I mean, that really the feel the way you feel. Why don't you whether it's the, the person who is responding differently to that evaluation at the round table, or you're deciding what to do with your kids, or you're deciding even where to eat lunch. I mean, have you ever gone to lunch and, and people say, well, where do you want to eat? And somebody says, well, I don't care. I'll go wherever. And somebody says, well, how about here? And the first thing that person says, well, not there. I mean, it's just, I don't have an opinion. I'll do whatever. Well, except that. Yes. Um, and and, and it, it's so human nature to, to just know that and accept that. And we, we also, and this is a Daniel Kahneman story, but but I think, and he won the Nobel Prize in 2002, I think. Uh, but I love this story because it shows what we think about our common sense. So Daniel Kahneman tells this story. And I, don't th- I read Thinking Fast and Slow, but I don't think it's in there. And here's the story he tells. He's at a cocktail party with his wife. And his wife leans over and whispers in his ear and points to some guy across the, the room and says, he's really sexy. He undresses the maid himself. And Kahneman's thinking, what in the hell is she talking about? That makes absolutely. So he spends the rest of the cocktail party wondering what his wife was talking about. So they get, get home and, and he says, you know, honey, I, I'm, it's fine. They went to that party, but I'm still stuck on what you said. You, you, you pointed at that guy and said, he's really sexy. He undresses the maid himself. And she looked at him like he was the village idiot and said, I didn't say that. So what I said is he's really sexy. He doesn't underestimate himself. <laughs> But here's the part that I, that I find so helpful about that. Daniel Kahneman is one of the brightest, most insightful people in the world. And his wife says this to him. And the only thing he can think of is she must have misspoken. The idea that he might have misheard or it was out of context or it's whatever else it might be. The only thing, none of, none of the possibilities included him mishearing, him being wrong, yeah. him giving his wife the benefit of the doubt. And I think... That is the challenge we face when we send evaluate, whether you're the plaintiff's lawyer talking to the plaintiff about what their case might be worth, or whether you're the defense lawyer sending that initial evaluation letter and changing it later, always hopefully with reasons, um, that, that we, get, we get wed to that and it never occurs to us, wow, that plaintiff's lawyer might bring up something that's relevant. We might have actually missed this, or this is an issue we hadn't anticipated. It is now in this case, and we need to consider it differently. Um, so, and I think data is important. Like we talk about slip and fall cases in, in the venue I practice, um, most of the time, generally, if, if you take all the slip and fall the premises cases that are out there, the defense wins them a little bit more than half the time. If you throw snow and ice into that, the defense wins them about 70% of the time. Now that's taking all kinds of fact scenarios. Um, but there was one that was recently tried on snow and ice and, and the plaintiff's lawyer thought what the case is worth, the defense lawyer didn't settle, um, and the jury came back at $4 million. Well, nobody thought $4 million. Um, and that idea that we are just not always right. We, we're we're going to get it wrong, and that risk factor is in there. We want to say, all things being equal, we think this case has a value of you know, A to Q. Um, but there's some things that could happen. It's worth otherwise. And say, but that's what we try to find out. Well, and that, and that kind of dovetails into the, the nuclear verdict that we see and you know when and when you have a case that's in you know involves a scenario that we see more nuclear verdicts in like say trucking we see more of them do you approach that mediation a little bit differently knowing that there's those i still call them outliers i think they are outliers but they're there do you approach it a little bit differently though i, I do um I, what i'll tell the plaintiff is I, I, we, we're all aware of this verdict i mean it, it's out there we can't deny that it's there um, that's not what we're seeing most cases come in. We're just not. Um, and, and I'll see if they will talk to me about where most cases come in. And then I'll talk the same to the defense about where they see most of these similar kinds of cases coming in. I'll say, now, 
the plaintiffs are going to be at higher numbers because they, they are unavoidably affected by this that happened, whether that's a different venue or different facts, whatever else. So the question in the defense room becomes, are you willing to pay some kind of a premium to avoid the nuclear verdict? Or have you decided we think this is a case that's worth you know, five to $7 million or whatever that number might be. Um, and if they want 15 or 20 or 40, whatever that number, then they got to go try the case. That, that's simply a risk you've chosen to take. Those become more difficult depending on what your coverage is and depending on various layers of coverage that different companies may have. But I absolutely talk about it because it's the elephant in the room otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and what the defense may say, we understand that, but if we settled all our cases based on nuclear verdicts, then we'd be out of business. So we understand this is a risk we must take. And if the stars align when we try this case like that one, then we're probably going to have to try it. Um, but if they want to settle it in a range where we think the case com comes in. But I also think it's a place from the trust standpoint for the defense side to say, let's be more candid with these folks. Let's say, here's really where we have this case. We think, so we understand you got to at least get to seven figures to get it done. And we're never getting to eight figures. But let us tell you why we think it fits in this category. And we're willing to listen to you tell us why you think it's not in that same range. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, it kind of still always rolls back to the that engaging and the listening and the, the ability to try to understand. <laughs> I, I think that's true. But I, I think there are two parts to that. I, I tend to think of understanding as a gift and acceptance as a choice. Um, I, I want to try to understand certain arguments, but if we look at politics or we look at whatever issues might be most important to you or, or your listeners in their lives, we may not understand why somebody has a, a position that's diametrically opposed to us on something that we think has moral relevance, in, including on a, in other ways. Um, but I can accept that they're there. And if I accept that they're there, I'm, I stop trying to convince them to change and find out, is there some way we can intersect and have, have that question? One, one of the things that, that comes up often in cases, usually in the plaintiff's room and somewhat sometimes in the defense room, is plaintiffs will say, it's not about the money, it's about the principle. Um, and when I was a younger lawyer with less white hair or younger mediator with less white hair, I would always say, or I would think, that's baloney, it's always about the money. But here's what I've come to believe. When people say that, they mean it. But what they've decided is they think the money that's paid bears a relationship to the principal. So what we'll talk about, and this kind of circles back to the five fingers, I say, your own lawyer has told you there's at least a 1% chance you lose this case or that you get a bad verdict. My view is 20%, but let's say it's 1%. If that 1% happens, are your principles going to change? Nobody has ever told me yes, ever. I said, so I'm not trying to talk you out of your principles. And I'm not trying to tell you what should or shouldn't measure your principles, but if your principles aren't going to change, regardless of what this jury does, and I'm not suggesting that they should, then what we're talking about here is something different than your principles. You need to hang on to your principles because that's what lets you put your head on the pillow and sleep at night. But what we're doing here is saying we're in a, a fancy, maybe sophisticated risk evaluation, deciding what's important to you and can we do something that makes a difference for you today. Um, your principles, I said, it is, it is above my pay grade and I do not have the right to argue with you about your principles. But it, help, it helps the conversation yeah. at least because we're not fighting about it anymore. Right, right. And then if you're not fighting about it anymore, your chances of su success are going to be that much more likely. It increases the odds, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we're just about out of time, but I, 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 I wanted to close up with the two, two things. One, you know, being as experienced as you are you know, what sort of advice do you give to, you know, a claims professional coming in to a mediation attorneys, you know, how to make it the most successful endeavor, regardless of where you are in the case? Is it early? Is it late? Is it, it, it just when you're coming in, you know, what recipe to, of success do you see? Well, I think the three questions before you ever come are, are really important to these. What do you want? What are your biggest fears and concerns? And what trade-offs are you willing to make? I think those are three vital considerations. I think the other part of it is to decide that you are willing to share in a civil way why you see the case as you see it, which may mean giving some things up. Which it may so you talk about life, you talk about the things that matter in the case in terms of decision makers, um, why you think there might be a chance of a defense verdict, but maybe not a great one. Said, so, boy, I think there's some things that could happen if the jury believes this witness and not that one. We might get a defense verdict. We're not claiming that's a major decider in terms of how we're looking at the case, but, but it's a factor. 
We think most of the time you'll win the case, you'll get a verdict. But we think you're gonna get some comparative fault and here's why. Um, we think the damage ranges, and this is the place they're probably not gonna share it early on, but from what we see in your demand, our damage range, even on the high end is significantly lower than yours. We want you to know that because our offers are going to reflect that coming in. We are here to try to get this case done because we think you've got a good lawyer. Um, and we find that people that are really good at what they do usually get this done. It works 98% of the time. So we want to be part of that 98%. But I want to give them specifics. So I want to give up what I, what I don't have, which is, okay, you're probably going to win this case. We think we got a shot. We think there's going to be, you want to give them reasons that their lawyer can understand and say, wow, you know, I, I disagree with them. I don't think they win the case, but we probably do get some comparative fault. And there's some things about the damages because your pre-existing conditions that are going to come into play, because that allows everybody to have a real conversation. I think on the defense side, it's really important because I've got some people on the defense side, that they argue every case, I'm going to get summary judgment, every case, I'm going to defense verdict. And I said, I get that. I just can't help you. I'm probably the wrong person to mediate this case for you. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a little dumbfounded by everyone who thinks they're always going to win that. Like there are cases you assess, like this is a good summary judgment case. I recommend us doing it. However, <laughs> well, like, and, yeah, I, I would suggest every defense lawyer, every plaintiff's lawyer, every claims professional um, should read at some point about Robert Caldini's science of influence, because we are at most going to be able to influence the other side, not change their mind by telling them they're wrong and we're right. Um, and Caldini talks, when he talks about the science of influence, he talks about likability. He talks about social proof, what are other people doing? He talks about reciprocity. He talks about authority. Do I have the stripes to do the job? Which doesn't mean telling everybody how smart you are. Um, and he talks about some other things of scarcity. He talks about some other things as well. And if I use those things well on either side, it gives me a chance of engaging in a way that I might get a little bit of influence. On the plaintiff side, maybe get a little bit bigger number. On the defense side, maybe keep the number down a little bit. And if people do those things, which is why I'm going to plug my book now. Um, it's not showing up on the thing because of my background, but the, 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 the book for me is I began mediating at the same time that I stopped drinking. I was a hopeless recovering alcoholic um, until I was about 37 years old. And so that process and litigating and mediating allowed me to learn that I am part of the problem in all these cases, that there are points of view other than mine, that I need to honor data that's out there. If 98% of cases settle, I need to stop thinking I'm so special. Um, and I want to find to engage and listen to other people, because if I could do those things, then it gives me a chance to have a relationship with the other side that moves the case toward closure rather than litigation. Yeah, that's great. Amazing advice. I, I, amazing advice. And, and so for our listeners, can you tell them where they can find your book? Positively Conflicted is available on Amazon. So if you put Positively Conflicted in my name, Sam Artery, you'll be able to get it on, on Amazon. It's all, also local bookstores can order it. So if you want to, I encourage everybody to support their local bookstores. So if you go to look at your local bookstore, some have it, most don't, um, but they can order it for you there as well. So either place. And it, it's, it's, it's about conflict. It's some about mediation. It's some about litigation. It's some about addiction, but it's, it's, a, it's a broad book. People usually, if you read the introduction, uh, you'll know pretty quickly whether you want it or not. If you, if you don't want it or can't afford it, let me know. I'll send you a free copy and you can put it in your local book drive. Well, awesome. And there, one last question before, before we wrap up, um, you know, if you could go back and give your younger self, you know, a, some piece of it or a nugget of advice, you know, what, what would you go back and tell your younger self? Don't invest so much in being right. What, what, what I tell people routinely is being right is really expensive and way overrated. Um, and I think the younger we are, the less self-confidence we have, the more afraid we are of outcomes and how we look. Um, and I was deeply invested in those things as a young lawyer. So I, I was kind of the classic, uh, only tool I had was a hammer. Um, and I was so threatened by people that used different tools that I would ignore them sometimes to the detriment of my client and sometimes to the detriment of myself. Yeah. Well, I love that. That is very good advice, I think, for anybody. <laughs> at any any stage in, in their <laughs> career in life so <laughs> I, I i thank you for that for sharing that um well sam it's been such a pleasure i hope everyone you know listening here you know reaches out to you either to get your book or you know if they need your mediation services i, I encourage you to reach out to sam i think you have a, 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 an amazing approach to you know either small or highly complex mediations um 
So I think your service would be well used by, by many. Well, it's been a delight. If anybody wants to reach me, they can reach me at sardery, A-R-D-E-R-Y, at law, L-A-W, B as in boy, R as in rabbit.com, sardery at lawbr.com, and I'd be happy to chat with anybody. Well, thank you so much. And of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to The Defense Never Rest on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube at TDNR Podcasts.